in some ways escape should not be a spectator sport. No, no, absolutely not. In, in fact, in, in almost every way, yeah. <laughs> escape is not a spectator sport. The yeah. less people who see you, the better chance you have of escaping. Usually is a good thing, yeah. Yeah, it's usually a positive. Hello and welcome to another episode of For You The War Is Over, our podcast about Second World War Prisoner War escapes, uh, presented by me, Dave the History Nerd. And me, Dave the Tech Geek. And today we are looking at, I, I think you're doing this on purpose for the whole series, but yet another person with an extremely strong name. Uh, we're looking at a gentleman called Sergeant Derek Nabarro, which is an amazing surname. I love it. It's fantastic, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Um, I, I'm not doing it on purpose, actually. Oh, I'm, I have uh, my doubts. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm doing it on the basis of um, which escapes interest me, and this guy does have an interesting story to tell. Okay. So, uh, looking forward to it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, let, let's, let's look at who he was first. So, he... Uh, he was in number 10 squadron of the RAF, uh, which was a, a bombing bomber squadron. Okay. Yeah. Um, so he flew in Whitley planes and he was a second pilot, I believe, um, oh. uh, flying out of Leeming to bomb uh, on this occasion uh, Bremen when he was shot down. Um, so on the way he reached the target and on the return journey was shot down by flak over Kiel. So this was on uh, 29th of June 1941 uh, he was captured and uh, in actual fact he wasn't to stay a prisoner of war all that long. Um, I'm sure we'll get to this but he was only a prisoner uh, for a couple of months but in that time he fitted in quite a lot. So he was captured fairly quickly in fact he was shot down over sea and was picked up um, by a German minesweeper in the Baltic Sea and taken back to Kiel and essentially taken to barracks there and uh, given that initial interrogation he was uh, required and entitled to give his rank name and number which is the minimum requirement for Geneva Convention and all that was required under the Geneva Convention in order to correctly identify who had been captured that sort yeah. of stuff and supply that back to the... Um, authorities of the combatant on their behalf and from their filter back to family and what have you um so he supplied that but obviously um further interrogation still continued to, yes, in efforts yeah. to try and find more information what he flew all that sort of stuff um what i find interesting is as i'm sure you're about to get onto anyway mm -hmm. is looking through just the the methods how many different methods they tried to do that yeah like the first one i think it's the first one says that we were we were interviewed casually whilst having a meal yeah as if to sort of disarm them to hopefully make them feel like a friend i assume and yeah. then just like small talk over i mean if you've just been shot down in the baltic yeah. sea which uh, by its name is not famed for its warmth yeah. they're giving you coffee they're giving you warm food blankets clothes that sort of stuff and and cigarettes as well cigarettes um which uh, strongly discourage you from smoking obviously oh, of course but, but in, in the 1940s the risks and threats of cigarettes were not known or at least not appreciated but the, well, the reason i bring up the cigarettes is because i found it interesting that they would give it to them even though it mentions that they the the, the german soldiers were only rationed three a day themselves 
Yes, no, exactly. And so, yeah, they would give them food, uh, tobacco, that sort of stuff to try and bring their guard down, try and get them chatting, make it a sociable thing, make it a friendly thing, make, you know, a um, little bit of good, good cop, bad cop, maybe. Possibly, um, yeah. There, There is, um, there are a, a number of the escape reports talk about the interrogations that they went through and the different types that you would get so you yeah. have the friendly type the uh the overly keen one the really rude one the uh cruel one the abusive one the you know different types of approaches that they would use i yeah. suppose um and that's certainly evident in this one it says here uh, we were asked how we were shot down uh, make of aircraft and squadron number. We just gave our name, rank, and number and said we were not allowed to say anything more. They said they knew we were a Wellington crew and what bomb loads our various aircraft carried. They est- their estimate was a thousand pounds short, however, they did not persist with the interrogation. Now, what I find interesting about that is having given the basic requirements, name, rank, and number, mm-hmm. it feels like the Germans are just fishing. Yeah, it absolutely it's, it's does. Like, you're, you're a Wellington crew, aren't you? Yeah. Um, and you know we know from this that he flew a Whitley, so a yeah. completely different type. And you know their estimates on the bomb, so it feels like they were just kind of putting stuff out there in the hope that something would stick. Yeah. Or they'd go, no, we weren't Wellington, we were Whitley. Yeah. You know, yeah that yeah. sort of thing. It very much feels like fishing rather than an actual interrogation. It's just seeing what sticks, throwing anything and see what sticks. And and, and with the you know the amount that they held and stuff, and saying they were a thousand pounds short, it almost feels like they were looking for confirmation of what they thought potentially was already the numbers yeah exactly but what i like is that you know when they were wrong they didn't respond with yes or no they just no. kind of ignored them yeah exactly um and then and then and in the next round of interrogation he describes it as they used the rolling stone method beginning with unimportant questions such as father's christian name and gradually increasing the tempo finally asking the number of my squadron when i did not answer that the interview came to an end so you know starting with quite innocuous stuff and building up and building up and building up i really like the phrase the rolling stone method yes which has yeah. a very different meaning yeah <laughs> now you know it's uh I, I hear that and kind of think the Rolling Stones, um, <laughs> yeah. but uh, I, I can see what I can see the point he's trying to make. Yeah, it, it makes perfect sense. Um, so yeah, from there they were then taken to Dulag Luft, and I, I, again he talks here about. Um, I was interrog- interrogated here by Eberhardt, the f- official interpreter, who asked the type of aircraft I was flying and the length of my RAF service. He seemed to be more interested in my squadron number than base when I refused to speak. He took down some t- particulars such as home address for Red Cross purposes and then left after a quarter of an hour. See, what gets me with the examples that he's given so far is that he seems to say that they're trying lots of different methods, but but not for very long. Yeah, it it's almost like bit... they give up quite quite easily. Yeah, it's, it, I, I suppose, you know, in, in our heads, the we often think about these interrogations as almost like Gestapo-esque. Yeah. You know, we're expecting it to be hours long, you know, yeah. uh, matchsticks under the fingernails, lights in the eyes, that sort of stuff, which, which were, yeah, it's awful, isn't it? Um, <laughs> beatings, that sort of stuff. And yeah. that did happen if you were captured by the Gestapo. It was, it was generally not good for your health. Yeah. Um, however, in, in these uh, dulags, they were not quite well they were certainly not as gruesome but they were probably not quite as um i was gonna say clinical and professional i hope you know what i mean by that i don't mean 
Um, I'm not trying to suggest that the Gestapo were professional in that <laughs> sense, but in in the sense of the um, they were probably not as well trained in interrogation yeah. methods, legal or otherwise. Yeah. Um, they were uh, they, you know they were probably some training, but it was probably more just kind of going and chat to this guy yeah. rather than rather than the methods the Gestapo are famed for. Um, and they were famed for a number of methods, yeah. um, and very few of them were particularly friendly. But I, I suppose the one point I wanted to pick up on is he said, you know, he gave his home address for Red Cross purposes. I mean, this this is kind of how he he, he gives a little bit away. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of how they managed to do this. I mean, it, it it's they may not get all an answer to all the questions that they want such a squadron number bomber type the bomb size all that sort of stuff but the even just giving away his home address might potentially give an indication as to where he then went on to get training yeah um i did think it was weird that he said that he volunteered up his home address i would have thought that'd be a thing that i would not volunteer up in that situation nor would i no but i knew they were not encouraged to do so but it wasn't unknown you know mm. it wasn't uncommon to kind of accidentally let slip or oh well you know I, I want to make sure my dad knows that i'm okay yeah it's not it's it's a perfectly natural understandable human reaction yeah. to want to let the family know that you're safe especially you know because when when they get the information that they haven't returned from action, at this stage no one knows what's actually happened to them. Yeah, that's true. Um, and so you might want to give your home address in the hope that your family will find out sooner that yeah. you've been shot down and you're alive, rather than you've been killed in action, yeah. which is of course worst case scenario. Yeah, you kind of have to give some allowance. I feel anyway, as much as the regulations and direction were, don't tell them where yeah. your home address. I kind of have some sympathy, you know. If I, I feel like if I was in that action, I, uh, in that position, I'd want to let my mum know <laughs> that I'm I'm fine. You know, I'd want to let my wife know that I'm fine. And these are things that I would want to do. So from from there, he spends a little bit of time in hospital, um, but essentially his prisoner war career, if you like, really started on in July. Uh, 1941 so about three weeks after he was captured yeah which as i said you know kind of tallies with how long a lot of them spend in the dulag luft so from there he then uh went to uh stalag 9c uh which was in bad Sulza, and this was the, the camp from which he was to ultimately escape right um so he so he didn't move around a lot like some of the other he didn't move around a lot and he made a couple of attempts from this but uh he was ultimately to escape in november 1941 and this and he only moved there in july 1941 so we're only talking about he was only there for four months and yet in that time he made three attempts and which is you know quite impressive in in and of itself it's pretty proactive about the whole situation yeah yeah he really was he really had no intention of hanging around uh if he could humanly avoid it when he was taken there there was a wide range of nationalities you know he talks about uh sharing a room with french belgian and serbian uh prisoners of war and of course a number of the uh those who were captured around dunkirk who were often wounded at the time of dunkirk 
Yeah. Because um, the priority was taking back either the most seriously wounded or those who were able to refight. And so they were often taken prisoner of war. And then by 1941, we're talking about July 1941, so just over a year since Dunkirk, you've now got a, a body of largely healthy prisoners of war who oh. were captured but now fit and ready. And it's interesting because he says that morale, morale was high among them all, especially amongst the formerly British wounded. And there was an unofficial escape club, the nucleus of which was made up of people who had already attempted to escape. This kind of comes back to the point of experience, of having gone through it all before, having made previous efforts and what you learn from them and kind of yeah. building upon we that. We have touched on that before, yeah. Yeah, you know, I find it interesting that this unofficial escape club is made up of people who have been there about a year and have attempted escape previously yeah so that you know again you're talking about this nucleus of people who are engaged interested the five percent that i've spoken about before yes um and so i think you know it's with these people or subsection of these people that he makes his escape attempts with you know his his first escape attempt actually is quite quite an interesting one I, I, in many ways it reminds me of uh what what's called the warburg wire job which um they essentially use planks to go across the barbed yes, wire so they can right, walk yeah. across they did something fairly similar here uh to the warburg wire job but instead they actually used the stanchions of the guard towers right yep to climb across or something along those lines yeah um and of course the brilliance of that is because you're directly underneath the guards they actually couldn't see you yeah i have some points <laughs> to make about the design of this place based on these comments he's made here yeah it doesn't seem to be particularly well designed No, because he says there were four watchtowers at the four corners of the um of the compound but the sentries on these could not see each other nor could they see immediately below the tower Yes. This seems like a poor design. <laughs> yes, it, it does. And I suppose the, the point I would make to that is certainly in later years of the war, you see far better designed, far more secure camps being yeah. built afresh. Stalagwith 3 is a very good example of this, which is the great escape in the wooden horse yep. uh, camp, uh, certainly the one it's most famed for. Um, whereby the design, the security, the sophistication of it is multi-layered and complex and a lot better than this. Yeah, This is still very early on in the war uh, in the grand scheme of things. Yes, camps like Coldits existed at this point, but... They were they were already in existence and you know they'd already been built. They knew oh, so they're already pre-existing buildings. Ex exactly. Right. Yes. Yeah, Whereas yeah. something like this, I think, was a more uh, impromptu building. There was a little bit of learning going on here, yeah. and they just kind of figured, you know, a couple of guard towers cover the corners, that'll be fine. Yeah. Whereas in later editions, they kind of had them spaced along the outer perimeter. They had a number of wires, that sort of stuff. Yeah. And so, um. Yeah, there were a couple of blind spots that this design created, <laughs> yeah. not, not least of which was directly beneath them. And so... I think you're about to go into what I was about to say, but because they, they make the, the attempt. My, the, my favourite three, three words of the next line is... In broad daylight, yes. In broad, well, let, let's finish the sentence. Yeah. In broad daylight, we climbed over the wire up against one of these towers and out of sight of the sentry. Um, so basically, they they created a distraction. Uh, if I remember correctly, some sort of boxing match in the middle of the compound, <laughs> which, when you're up in the guard tower, is extremely boring. 
Yeah. And so <laughs> anything like that, if you've got two prisoners kind of faking an argument and having a bit of a having a bit of a dust up having a bit of a dust up fisticuffs you yep. might say um handbags at 10 paces all that sort of stuff <laughs> it it breaks the monotony yeah and so if that's happening that's where your attention is it just so happens at exactly the same time you've got two prisoners of war climbing the guard tower you're in <laughs> and and effectively scaling the wire to yep. get out and so, as I say, they kind of use the stanchion of the guard tower to climb across the wire yeah. and get over it that way. Unfortunately, two of the prisoners who were not in on it effectively saw them doing this and cheered them on. <laughs> and that's how they were spotted. That's a great way to get caught. <laughs> so basically, like these two people saw them and thought, brilliant, let, let's give these guys a, a good cheer. Let's not give them a chance to get no. away. No, no, let let's you know let's encourage them let's not give them a chance to get away and then maybe later use that same method ourselves no no absolutely zero foresight here um which so when you know when they got excited and noticed their escape the guards started getting suspicious yeah um you know why were some of the why were some of the prisoners shouting outside the wire rather than at the um fight that was going on yeah and so they basically turned around and saw these two prisoners running towards a ditch uh <laughs> next to it's a bit of a giveaway a bit of a giveaway yes um which you know it's a shame because they'd actually put in a lot of effort you know they said we had food for a fortnight a compass map tracings of the route to the italian swiss border so you know they'd actually prepared quite significantly yeah um and so I, I kind of felt a bit bad for them yeah. because, uh, you know, they put in a lot of effort and then for someone to be dumb enough to basically cheer them on, like, what? In some ways, escape should not be a spectator sport. No, no, absolutely not. In, in fact, in, in almost every way, yeah. escape is not a spectator sport. The yeah. less people who see you, the better chance you have of escaping. Usually it's a good thing, yeah. Yeah, it's usually a positive. In in essence, they kind of, they captured Nabarro first and he was doing it with a partner, a guy called uh, um, Sergeant Pilot Hall and he tried to give Hall a chance to get away but uh, someone had uh, noticed that there was two of them and uh, so right. basically they, they searched him out and dragged him out um, and so uh, they were recaptured um, and while they did find the map that they had on them, they didn't find the uh, compass, which uh, Hall had hidden between his legs with a bit of sticking plaster, which can't have been a particularly thorough search. I also don't imagine it was that comfortable either. No, no. Um, and for this this uh, short-lived but fairly valiant effort, I thought, yep. uh, they received 24 days in the cells, uh, solitary confinement, uh, but I love this. We're turned out after a week to make room for more escapers. So, <laughs> so basically, there were there were so many people attempting that they had they were had run out of room. They run out of room in solitary confinement, so they basically had a rota of rotating escapers. That's amazing. <laughs> it's fantastic. Um, and so while he was in prison, he actually um, got chatting to a major who was in the next door cell to him um who'd been in charge of the escape club uh, in O'Flag uh, 10C which is in Lubeck this guy had serious uh, administrative and escaping expertise right and what i find interesting about this is it says he was the one that told me about the Schaffhausen route in second world war prisoner war escapes Schaffhausen is a major player 
Right. It is a small town on the Swiss side of the German border. Okay. German-Swiss border. And the reason why it's so important is because a number of people got into Switzerland from that route. Right, okay. Um, the Schaffhausen route is evidence of intelligence, escape intelligence feeding back in on itself. So basically someone, uh, basically they knew that it was a route that they could use to escape and therefore they fed it back and back and back and they kept on using it and successfully using it. And there, there's something whereby, um, so it's called the Schaffhausen salient and this is quite important to this escape actually as well. Okay. Um, for, for a very different reason when he goes from uh, occupied France to unoccupied France, which we'll come to. So a border isn't a straight line. No. And this part of Switzerland juts out into Germany. It's like a finger sticking out into right. Germany where the border has gone up and come back again. Yep. And so it's very easy to cross into Switzerland and then cross back into Germany. Just by effectively walking in a straight line almost. Well, in the wrong direction. Yeah. So you need to be going the length of the finger rather than across the finger yeah. in order to get to Schaffhausen. And so the Schaffhausen salient was a very effective way of getting in, but you had to get a very correct angle to get in. Okay, right. It became almost legendary in its use, and it is a very well-known route. And I believe... I'm right in saying that essentially you lined up a chimney with the church steeple, <laughs> and if you got if you got those two in a line, yeah, almost like a Toblerone, yeah, <laughs> whereby if they were all in a line, uh, you were facing the right direction, and right. so you just kind of walked walk towards that. Line. that. It's, it's that sort of thing whereby that's how you got the right angle on this ah. salient. And therefore, you could go straight in. So the Schaffhausen salient is a very famous route from the Second World War right, okay. for escaping from getting it into Switzerland from Germany. Yeah. Um, is, and it's a very effective route. However, so he doesn't actually use this route, but it's interesting he mentions it because of its fame, but also because of... Of something what, that happens to him later, yeah. Happened, which we shall get to later. Yes, Let's indeed. not preempt it too much. Um, but we shall get there, and it's an interesting uh, episode in this escape. Uh, so moving on to his second attempt, I was almost a wee bit disappointed by this one, because having put in so much effort into that one, and the final one in which he does successfully attempt, this one almost seems a bit half-hearted. See, I love this one because it seems completely unintentional. Yeah, well, yes, yes. It, it is very impromptu, isn't yeah. it? It's, it's kind of, he just, he sees an opportunity... Yeah. Um and goes for it. Yeah, yeah. But absolutely. It, it doesn't kinda it almost feels like he just kinda He he lucked into it almost. Yeah. It was not it was nothing to do with him almost, like the actual trigger for, for the Yeah, he didn't plan it out or yeah. anything like that. But because of that, it, maybe I'm being a bit unfair, but because he lucked into it, it almost feels like he doesn't quite give it his full go. Yeah. <laughs> maybe I'm being unfair. Maybe. So essentially he was cleaning out a potato cart. Uh, when the guard, well, in fact, I'll read this out. When the guard, getting impatient, drove off with me still inside. When we got near a wood, I jumped off and hid in it. Um, on this occasion, I happened to have with me a week supply of vitamin tablets, which seems. I don't know why he would have that on him. Yeah, but... I mean, why wouldn't you? Almost. <laughs> um, he seems to have got quite far. So, he, uh, 
on a week's supply of vitamin tablets. I jumped two good trains, but three days later was caught asleep in a wagon. The end. The yeah, the a little bit that is the end. I mean, it's a fairly. I mean, he tries and he goes for it, but it, it, you're right. It's almost like oh, I I I accidentally happened on a little adventure. To, yeah. And then, oh, I've been caught. Never mind. I've found myself outside the camp. I might as well give it a go. Rather than, here's what I'm going to do. And when I get out, I'm going to do this, this, and this. Yeah. And I I suppose my point is this, which is, it's very rare that an unplanned escape works. Right. I'm not saying it didn't happen. Yeah. But, and it wasn't beyond the realms of possibility. And, you know, don't get me wrong, there are plenty of planned escapes and very, very well thought out escapes that did not work and yeah. did not succeed. But it's very rare that an unplanned escape succeeds. And so I suppose that and I'm juxtapositioning this with his more planned out efforts and right, the more yeah. planned out efforts of most of them. I mean, you know, most of the escapes that we have gone through have been very well thought out, very well planned They've anticipated things, they've prepared supplies, foods, clothes, maps, compasses, money, whatever it is they need to succeed. That one, it's quite a nice little episode because it kind of highlights the other side of things when people didn't really... Yeah, yeah. Although it was impromptu and he maybe didn't have the time to prepare stuff, it kind of shows you the difference it can make. Yeah. What having... uh, The difference having all the preparation on hand yep. could make however i quite enjoyed uh his description of being recaptured so this time you know again reading out this time i was sentenced to 21 days in the cell but i only completed 15 so he did a little over two weeks i had by this time made two dozen keys for the window of the cell and we were always able to keep anyone in them provided with food so in the space of two weeks he seemed to have made 24 keys yeah for the cell he is in I mean, how bad is the security? I was going to say, just how did he do that? Yes, exactly. I'm quite impressed. Um, However, and this is picking up on the point I've just made, I then set about making preparations for escape with a Belgian whose Christian name is Godfrey. He found out the times of the train. I got 60 marks, a pair of uh, trousers and a leather jacket from a Frenchman in return for a fountain pen, a wristwatch and an army greatcoat. Uh, he also provided maps that's godfrey and i improved my french by conversation with a corsican instantly you're seeing the contrast of i almost feel like he kind of spotted his lack of preparation and was yeah just, and just kind of felt right next time yeah i'm next gonna make time, sure i'm super prepared i'm gonna be prepared and i would argue that the preparations he's already putting into his final one is even better than the one he put into his first escape. Yes. Whereby, you know, he quite openly says, uh, we had food for a fortnight, a compass, and my uh, and map tracings of the route to the Italian Swiss port. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. But, but this, this feels like it's... Really, he's it, really getting his teeth into it. It feels like he knew that this was going to be the one. Yeah, yeah, I think that's actually fair. Um, I mean, certainly he was putting in a lot more effort. You know, yeah. The elbow grease was there uh, on this one. So he, he arrived in the camp in middle of July 1941. His first escape was September 1941. Second escape, October 1941. His final escape was the end of November 1941. May, may I point out the 25th of November, which um, if anyone wants to send me birthday presents, happens to be my birthday. So um, 
It's a good day for me. A good day for an escape and a exactly. good day for a birthday. Yeah. Yeah. So the final escape, the the successful escape. I'll read. I'll read it out again. Uh, we escaped on twenty fifth November by going up to the guard at oh six thirty hours and saying we were going to clean out the commandant's office, which was outside the main wire. He let us through without fuss, as he had been on duty for three hours and was due to be relieved. I feel like he should have been a touch more suspicious. I feel the same as well. Um, th- this is clearly a guard uh, who I suspect... It's the same guard that was up in that tower, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, pro- probably, yeah. I mean, to be fair, he's been on duty since 3.30 in the morning. Yeah. It's end of November. We're not exactly talking about a warm no. time. So I, I do I do suspect he was maybe a touch docile. Possibly. Um, however, when two prisoners of war rock up at 6.30 in the morning and say, yeah, we're off to clean the commandant's office, would you... Would you just let them through? No, I'm, I wouldn't. Um, yeah, I, I definitely feel like this guy should have been a lot more suspicious. You know, they then say the single strand of barbed wire uh, was easily negotiated and presented no difficulty. Uh, they quickly went to uh, the next village and caught a local train towards Berlin. Uh, Godfrey spoke German and throughout the journey uh, bought tickets without exciting comment. So essentially they kind of just get a series of local trains that may be heading towards a larger town but they kind of dot around in an effort to sort of um, just take a series of small short journeys by train thus not arousing suspicion. By by taking these series of local trains they make their their way towards uh, Castle which is a, a large city in central Germany um what I do find interesting, he says here, we did not go about together but met at the station lavatory to make our plans and decide which trains we were going to take. So essentially, it was rather than strength in numbers, they were just trying to... They were just trying to hide in the crowd. Yeah, a little bit and just yeah. uh, try not to arouse suspicion because I suppose two people wandering around all day is not a particularly natural behaviour. No, not if they're circling around the sort of same area and things like that. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, but what I do find interesting is he says, I carried a lot of 10 fennec pieces in order to be able to lock myself in the lavatories and avoid being seen hanging around stations. I mean, that's always a good thing. Yeah. Another point he makes, which is uh, consistent is with other escapes, is he says it was a convenient place to shave. Yeah. Which, again, if you're if you're not doing the cross-country, if you're going by train and... Um, using the hotels, that sort of thing, you need to look presentable. Therefore, yeah. in order to amalgamate yourself into the general population, you had to be able to shave. Yeah. So uh, this is certainly consistent with, um, I think it's Philpott and uh, Codner and Williams that yeah, talk yeah, about yeah. this quite heavily uh, in the Wooden Horse Escape. Um, about looking looking the part whilst you're travelling on the Exactly, trains. looking the part. And so it's interesting, you know, as far as I'm aware, these, um, in fact, this is, this is at least a year before... Uh, Codner and Williams and Philpott escaped. Uh, in fact, I think it might even be about eighteen months, two years. I think they were nineteen forty-three, and so um, this is quite significantly before then. And yet yeah. he's already talking about the need to look the part, the need to amalgamate in, and shaving is a big part of that. Yeah. Um, looking presentable, looking like you're not a tramp, <laughs> I suppose. Um, <laughs> As a beard wearer, I take offence to this comment. But, uh... <laughs> However, you know, th- th- there was one other interesting episode I wanted to pick up on, on on these train journeys, which is that he says on the train to Castle, 
It was very crowded, but we managed to get seats. Uh, there was an RAF raid during the journey, and the train stopped for three hours. Now, bear in mind that this guy is an RAF bomber pilot, <laughs> yeah. and he finds himself in the middle of, of an raid. RAF bombing raid. That's amazing. I love the irony of that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it, there's, it's just fantastic. And I suppose there's an element of professional interest as well. I mean, there must have been an element of fascination with actually the experience at the other end. Of seeing the other side. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. You know, just kind of being, oh, that's that's what it's like. Um, uh, yeah, and then I was actually looking at this. The I mean, the irony of that is that not only because he got to see it from the other side, but it also caused them to miss their next train. Yes. Um, which And it says here, we missed our connection and had to wait 15 hours for the next one, mm. which is a very long time. It is, and it's the it's sort of period of time that would that risks arousing suspicion. Yeah. Which I think leads to, uh, they sort of say next, we walked about town and then went into the buffet and slept slept the night there with some German soldiers, which is also an interesting risk to just be there with the soldiers. Absolutely. But the bit I really liked was um, we bought beer and, uh, what was it, we bought... Ersatz. Ersatz coffee. Ah. Fake coffee. It was made out of acorns. Ah, okay, right. So we bought beer and Ersatz coffee, but no food. No. So they got the important things. They got beer, they got coffee, they didn't bother any food because they had some chocolate and some vitamin tablets and that was enough to sustain them. Yes, although interestingly, it's interesting that they uh, ate the chocolate in plain sight. Because by this point, chocolate was heavily rationed and was actually... Because you've mentioned it before, that it yeah. comes through the Red Cross packages and things like that. And therefore, so. it, was a, it was a potential indicator that you were a prisoner of war. They were, they were quite gung-ho about it, it seems. The, yeah, they were. They were. Like, bit of beer, bit of coffee, bit of chocolate. It's, it's a bit of a yuppie's breakfast, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> like, <laughs> alcohol, coffee, chocolate. That's yeah. what, what more do you need? And then some vitamin tablets to just kind of see you through the day. You want to be a bit healthy. Yeah, a bit of Barocco. <laughs> Other vitamin supplements are available. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so their their next train takes them to Koblenz, uh, where they had to wait overnight and then caught a train to Gerolstein. Uh, let's go with that. Uh, which it says is about 50 kilometres from the Luxembourg frontier. So they're very clearly heading west towards France at yeah. this point. Um, you know... Uh, backtracking slightly, they said Godfrey was a Belgian. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I suppose they're they're taking the long route to France in that they go via Belgium. I have read uh, Derek Nabarro's book about his escape, wait, wait for the dawn, and I know I I know from that that the intention was to head towards Belgium right, initially okay. in order to try and make contact with Godfrey's family. Yeah, um, and from there they kind of split up and head towards France. But they are making their way towards France in the, yeah. in the sort of grand scheme of things. It is France is the initial target um, rather than Switzerland, um, which was an alternative yeah. route. And so, yeah, they're, they're 50 kilometres from the Luxembourg uh, frontier. However, at Gerolstein, they were uh, caught leaving the uh, station, the train station. And... You know, interesting, it's, it's kind of a local custom that kind of catches them out. Uh, you know, going back to amalgamation, in many ways, no way they could have known this, but yeah. uh, basically it says, it was a Sunday which is strictly observed in this Catholic part of Germany and our unusual appearance attracted attention. Now, given that they were dressed, quote-unquote, normally, you know, they'd taken the effort to shave, keep themselves presentable, 
it's interesting that because they weren't in their Sunday best. Yeah, I was going to say is the this, is the lack of the Sunday best. Probably. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, because it was so strictly observed in in a Catholic part of Germany. Yeah. Um, that caused their recapture, and it is the small details that often causes recapture. And so, when they asked for papers, the forged documents that they were that they were carrying, claiming they were Belgian workers, uh, didn't get them very far. So they were taken to the police station, uh, where they made contact with a with a French escape prisoner of war, um, who was to play a bit more of a a, a part in the rest of the story. Um, however, they all escaped together the following morning uh, by going uh, to the place where they washed and essentially knocking out the guard and getting out of the window. So just basically <laughs> taking them out. Yeah. Sometimes it doesn't have to be super complicated. No, no, it absolutely <laughs> doesn't. Um, absolutely not. Uh, and they then basically ran across country, drew south for about 12 kilometers, um, just liked it. There's no other <laughs> glorious way to describe it. They they just took to their heels and legged it. Nice. And so yeah, they they in having travelled by train thus far, they started moving on foot. Yeah. And very much heading making their way towards Belgium. It says the following morning, so by this point we're up to the third of December. Following morning without realizing that we crossed the frontier into Luxembourg and then from there they went to Belgium where we stayed the night in a cafe. However, he, he almost couldn't resist a little dig here. Yeah, it's, I like it's, it's, it's great, isn't it? Um, yeah. We realized we got out of Germany by the fact that people looked so much more cheerful. <laughs> uh, but he, he then says, you know, Godfrey knew this part of the country and we went by tram to Bastogne and then uh, on by train to Libremont, uh, where they stayed the night at Godfrey's family home. Which is lovely. Yeah, very nice. A uh, nice little pre-Christmas family reunion for Godfrey and his yes. family. He didn't stay that long there. He only stayed the one night. And from there, they kind of parted parted ways. So from, um, essentially, uh, Nabarro and this this French prisoner of war who they broke out of the police station with, yeah. uh, the two of them start heading towards France uh, together, uh, make their way towards France from Belgium. Uh, and it says here uh, went by train with the Frenchman via Namur and Charlois to the French-Belgian uh, frontier uh, where they walked over the frontier uh, without being stopped Godfrey's father gave me 600 Belgian francs which enabled me to reach Paris by train so yeah I mean they, they are up to the 4th of December they've only been out 10 days and they've reached Paris that's pretty impressive uh, which not bad at all Nabarro when he was in Paris um actually had an affair right yeah um he approached uh, a lady called katrina apparently which i always thought was a scottish name or at least celtic yeah yeah and i didn't have it down as a particularly french name hmm. however he, he he didn't know her name was katrina at this point uh he approached her in a cafe asking for help to uh, make contact with the resistance the underground right. yeah yeah uh to help him escape the escape lines that existed and uh, while she was more than happy to help, uh, while he was staying in her flat, um, they had an affair. Oh, okay. Um, which wasn't unknown, but not that common either. However, essentially, he realised that he had to get home. Um, Fair enough. Yeah. They parted ways on good terms. Okay. Which is lovely. Yeah. Which is lovely. Um and so he he started making his way towards unoccupied France. Okay. And this is uh, where he, he makes contact back 
with uh, the Frenchman who he escaped with. So his name's never given. They just call him <laughs> the Frenchman. The Frenchman. Okay. Um, this Frenchman, they, they meet up uh, on the occupied side of the line. Right. And he offers to guide him across the line. Mm-hmm. However, they get separated yeah. uh, on the way over. And basically, he's left trying to find his way across the line by himself. Right. In the book... Nabarro makes it pretty clear that he, su- he suspects that the Frenchman tried to get rid of him. Really? Yeah, quite oh. quite strongly hints at it. He doesn't say it explicitly, if I remember correctly, but he quite strongly hints when they meet up on the other side of the line how shocked the Frenchman was to see him. Ah, so he didn't think he was going to make it. Exactly, yeah. And he kind of, as I say, he suggests that he tried to get rid of him, basically tried to lose him. Yeah. Um. However, he, he did cross the line by himself but the episode of him crossing the line is quite entertaining <laughs> because um going back to the Schaffhausen salient ah. as i said the border is not a straight line yeah and he basically did exactly what you shouldn't do and cr- he successfully managed to cross into o- unoccupied france and then crossed back into occupied france where he was captured by the germans oh <laughs> no However, and this is where it does get entertaining, he managed to convince them that he was trying to get into occupied France in order to get himself sent back to unoccupied France, i.e. where he was trying to get to. Right. So he, he, he told them that he was coming from Lyon and he was trying to make his way towards Paris. Okay. And so they sent him back to Lyon. So, so they just So from their point of view, they were like, you're not getting any further, mate. Go back. Yeah. From his point of view, he was going in exactly the right direction and was, a, <laughs> was basically given free pass by the Germans to get there. Uh, they did keep him in cells for a couple for a couple of hours, maybe a day or two. Right. But in essence, they basically tried to interrogate him to see whether he was lying. He stuck to the line and basically they sent him on his way back to <laughs> Lyon, which was actually his intended that's amazing. Uh, destination. And he, he ended up being captured by the French instead. <laughs> yeah. Um, and he didn't have a very good moment. No, no, it wasn't his finest. But as, as I said, maybe that's why he was suspicious of the Frenchman trying to drop him. Yeah. Um, so yeah, he, he was captured by the French and they put him in a couple of forts. Um, but ultimately he managed to get out of these forts and basically make his way down to Gibraltar from there. Um and in in his book he is is quite entertaining. He talks about um how he'd you know, he'd seen Union flags many times in the in his life and yeah. he'd even seen them at the embassies in Spain as he was making his way through Spain towards Gibraltar. Okay. But he always felt that they were fake until he got to Gibraltar. And then when he got there it was a real Union flag and was delighted to see <laughs> it. And his first comment upon arriving on Gibraltar soil was where's the nearest pub? <laughs> which is possibly the most British reaction to seeing the Union Jack yep. imaginable. Um, <laughs> That's amazing. Yes, yeah, exactly. And so, you know, he, he arrived uh, down in Gibraltar late September 1942, I think it was, and made his way to Greenock, so he must have gone by a ship, arriving back in the UK on the 5th of October 1942, so just shy of a year after his initial escape. Yeah. Um, so it was it wasn't a quick escape, 
Uh, he did take his time. Um, which, you know, ironically, the escape itself was actually longer than the amount of time he spent as a prisoner of war. <laughs> Very true. Um, yeah. By several months, actually. Yeah. <laughs> um, it took him longer to get home than his actual holding time. Wow. Which is, which is a fair <laughs> record. Yeah. How, however... As fascinating as enjoyable as that escape was, it's possibly not the most interesting or entertaining fact about Derek Nabarro. Why do I feel like you're going to reveal something here? Well, yeah, so his his, um, post-war career is very entertaining. Yeah. (laughs) uh, Because Derek Nabarro went on to write smutty novels. That's amazing. (laughs) Yep. Very smutty novels. So it is well worth reading out some of his uh, titles because it's... Oh, have you got his... uh, Yeah, brilliant. Frankly, very entertaining. Um, And so things like The Rod of Anger. The Rod of Anger, that... Chariots of Desire. (laughs) Too Hard to Handle. Oh, (laughs) amazing. The Seeds of Destruction. Wow. Were just a few of his... uh, few of the smutty titles to his smutty novels too hard to handle too hard. I, my, I think my personal favorite is chariots of desire i think i, think I like the the rod of anger the rod of anger the rod very of anger good, very good that i think is amazing so yeah the, the derek nabarro uh had a fantastic escape uh we affair in paris I mean, when in paris um, I wonder whether that's the inspiration for one of the stories. Maybe it is. You know, if there's a character called Katrina in it, and uh-huh. what have you, we shall need to read and find out. Um, so that is Derek Nabarro. Wow, what, what a, a man! What a man! What a character! <laughs> what what a hero! Okay, um, well, thank you everybody for listening to this week's episode. We hope you've enjoyed it. Um, if you have, um, please consider subscribing to the podcast. Uh, we can be found on Apple iTunes, um, Google Podcasts, or uh, any basically any of your favourite podcast platforms. Or you can follow us on Twitter on at F-I-T-W-I-O. Um, if you'd like to send us a more long-form message, then you can also email us at fytwiopod at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you.